Hello and welcome to Movies on the Side. This is Stephen Robles and today we have a very special guest. I'm going to introduce him in a moment, but don't worry, Nate Baranowski has not fallen down a 3D chalk rabbit hole. He will be back very soon. But please enjoy this review of the 2004 movie The Aviator with special guest Merlin Mann. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor today because the person that I would say got me into podcasting and with no exaggeration with his show Back to Work with Dan Benjamin, he is on this show to talk about The Aviator. Merlin Mann, thanks so much for joining us today. Steve, who is it? Who you having on? <laughs> Listen. <laughs> sounds really cool. Who's it going to be? I didn't do this in the pre-show, but it is no exaggeration. <laughs> I think Back to Work was one of the first shows I started listening to. I'm so sorry. I'm and so I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm, I am just honored to now be a part of the Merlin podcast universe the way the future. at least yeah. by, <laughs> the, show me all the blueprints and i want <laughs> to get this done right so this is exactly why I, I wanted to have you on for the aviator discussion i just want to let you know a merlin man first of all reconcilable differences my second favorite thing you've ever done because i know that's typically what you ask <laughs> those who want to come on your podcast oh wow nice poll yeah yeah thank you but again just thank you so much so the aviator typically we do a thing where the co-host guesses what the Rotten Tomato score, critic and audience. And so I don't know if you've seen it uh, already, if you know the score, but- I don't. Okay, perfect. So there's there's a, there's a, there's a, <laughs> in our house it's referred to, we say, oh, how many tomatoes did, did that get? Um, so exactly. there's the, there's the critic score and the popcorn audience score. Exactly. And they're often extremely different. <laughs> yes. I'm going to say, I'm going to uh, I have no idea of popcorn. I'm going to say- Tomatoes critic score, uh, I'm going to guess 83. And people who saw it, I'm going to say 92. Oh, very close. So critics gave it 86. No, come on, really. 86. So you were very close. That's pretty good. Audience gave it 79. Okay. Uh, maybe the uh, peeing in the bottles kind of turned some people mm. off. But we'll, we, will, we will get to that. Yeah, not, not enough Catherine Hepburn. Okay, exactly. So <laughs> th- th- again, the reason why I wanted to have you, you mentioned this movie, whether it's Show Me All the Blueprints yeah. or Way of the Future, many, many times. And so I want to know, what is your connection to this movie? What is the history? Like, <laughs> sure. why this movie? And is it your favorite movie you may be directing this movie howard but what you're asking we can't do it don't tell me i can't do it don't tell me it can't be done oh that's a very good question um i was explaining this to my family who does not listen to me understandably saying last night that um on the back to work show with dan for the longest time there's a a phrase we would use we would refer to the film right and i feel like for the first like five years of the show the film usually meant the big lebowski (laughs) just in the sense that it was shorthand for like this is the movie we both like more than almost anything i'm a huge fan of the cone brothers and i really do have a special affection for the big lebowski i don't remember how it started but at some point we started talking about the aviator directed by martin scorsese story of Howard Hughes, as we've talked about here. Um, And the thing is, like, you know, Dan's such a conundrum. But Dan has in the past had, I don't know, I don't like to speak on somebody's behalf about their medical stuff. But Dan has had, like, you know, um, (laughs) legitimately bronchial, to refer to another Scorsese. He he had legitimate OCD. He struggled with aspects of OCD. And, you know... OCD, there's a lot more to it than it seems like from people saying, I'm so OCD. Like, there's a lot to it that gets lost in the lights. And it's, let's just say that I think he's had things in his life that troubled him in a way that also, let's say, troubled uh, Howard Hughes. And the running joke on the show is we both love this movie. We're constantly annoyingly quoting it. It might as well be, (laughs) this might as well be 1981. We're talking about Caddyshack. It's so annoying. We do quote it a lot. And then the joke on the show is Dan will say, well, now I have to go watch the film. Right. I'm trying to remember how it came in my life. Came out 2004. Yeah. I don't think I saw it. So 2004 will always be the year I started 43 folders in my head. That's how I, that's oh, I'm yes, so yes. self-involved that that really helps me. <laughs> I don't remember seeing the theater. All I know is it, it came along at some point and there was so much about it that struck me. The very uh, unusual way that it looks, I, the music, the the way the story is told. It just really grabbed me. And I got to say, Leo, maybe the height of his handsomeness mm. and just the way he, he delivers this role, his eyes, you know? Yes. And, you know, and that's before we even really get into like, wait a minute, I've seen this movie 11 times. How is it? I forget every single time that Adam Scott is in this movie. Every single time I forget. <laughs> and then um, 
What's her head? Uh, whom I love. Gwen Stefani? <laughs> I <laughs> I the, yes, the No Doubt Lady. No, you know, uh, Catherine Hepburn, played by... Kate Blanchett. Yes, I wanted to say uh, Tilda Swinton, and I know that's wrong. Um, she's <laughs> such a delight in this. What a breakout role. She's incredible. I don't know, it just really grabs me. I think part of it is that, you know, the, the, the way the story is told can really kind of glide by you. So there's a thing that happens, I feel like, in, for example, in Christopher Nolan movies. And I've joked about this, but I'm really not joking. Sometimes I'm watching a Christopher Nolan movie, like even something like, Inter- or especially something like Interstellar, and I'll like, be like, this feels like a two-hour trailer for the movie that I'm watching, <laughs> but it is the movie. Yes. And like the way yes. there's certain yes. kinds of edits that he does and then scoring that he does yes. that really feels like whatever the opposite of a teaser trailer is, which I guess is the whole movie. But done well, <laughs> that can be very, obviously in the case of somebody like um, Coppola, that ability yeah. to pull together very different things happening at the same time. What he does here. What Scorsese does here, I think, is really quite amazing. The pace of this storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, they always say in a good fight scene, whether that's Game of Thrones or Jackie Chan, you always know where everybody is, what they're doing, and what is happening. Yes. Start watching. When you watch a fight scene in a movie, and you'll notice, like, the good ones aren't about, like, these thousands of cuts. It's about the Jackie Chan style. Like, I understand. Oh, it's here. That, that's where that ladder came from. I understand that. Um, and I feel like this movie is great at something similar to that, which is the the pace is so snappy. Yes. The camera shots will be so wild. Like the shot of his mouth inside, just notice this time, the shot of his mouth inside the megaphone where the camera then pulls back (laughs) and he's telling everybody to go to Oakland. And I just keep thinking like, I know just enough about cameras to know that was probably not an easy shot to get. <laughs> right. With the beautiful music, with the muted trumpets, and oh, yes. the way the subtle differences in things like stage setting and uh, over time. And I just think it feels like one, you know, just big contiguous story. Yes. I know I'm talking a lot. The other thing, just to mention in passing, I was obsessed with Howard Hughes as a kid. Okay. So I am not a garden variety cinephile sure. that just goes, hmm. Movie about Howard Hughes. That's interesting because I was obsessed with him as a child. How were you? Okay, so side note. Yes. I watched Interstellar for the first time with my almost teenage son. (laughs) And I will say it almost felt like a rite of passage. I don't know, to watch that movie. Oh, come on. Really? It's super long. That movie is really frustrating to me. It is very frustrating. It's it's so good and so not that good. It's like, it's really annoying to me. See, I like now Inception. I think Inception is really oh, yes. good. I think Memento yes. is really good. I think The Dark Knight right, is really yeah. good. I don't dislike any of those, but I would stack that one up more with Tenet, where it's like, oh, dude, what? Oh, Tenet. Now, Tenet. Tenet, they're just having fun with you. They're just messing with your head. Insufferable. I was obsessed with Howard Hughes, starting from about 1975 or 6. Show me all the blueprints. I want to get this done right, so show me all the blueprints. Show me all the blueprints. How is a child obsessed with... <laughs> How does a nine-year-old boy become obsessed? <laughs> Sorry. With, I know, I'm just yeah. curious. Is it aviation? No, it's a good question. It, yeah. What, what, what had happened was, so, um, <laughs> you know, at different times in life, there are names, especially in times, older times, there are names that are synonymous with certain things. And right. there were names that were synonymous with financial success before I came along. You know, if you say Rockefeller, everybody knew what that right. meant. It meant a guy right. who stood in front of his oil building handing out dimes because he was so gosh dang rich. You ever hear the quote where someone asked him how much money is enough? And he said, just a little more. I thought that was very good. Oh, so good. I think the same could be said of Steve Jobs, probably. Right. Not with money, but in terms of like, oh, I just need one more little success. Just one more thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, they're different from us. But like, you take somebody like Rockefeller, you take somebody like, I don't know, I guess Getty at one point, but people who are just a little bit older than me to maybe 30 years older than me, Howard Hughes was synonymous with American wealth, success, and okay. and I didn't even know him as being sort of a Renaissance man. I just knew him as being one of America's richest men mm. who was a little bit eccentric. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, you, you would understand this, you young people. But, like, when you're a little kid, you know, oh, Jack Benny, he's rich, but he's chintzy. Right. Or, you know, Groucho Marx, he likes ladies. And for me, Howard Hughes was synonymous with, before I even learned all the other things, was like, well, we just know that he was he was a titan of industry, but he was also kind of a, an right. eccentric guy. Up until 1976, and that's when everything changed. Right, which I want to talk about kind of the part of his Please. life this movie does not cover, <laughs> which is wild. Oh my God, it's so wild. Like, you look at the moguls of today, 2022, <laughs> and how much they have to live in the public eye. You almost... yeah 
couldn't maybe be the kind of recluse. He could get away with being on a speakerphone in Las Vegas. Right. And like holding it together just long enough. Whereas Elon Musk is out there like. He's tweeting and he's on camera and all that stuff. He just, he cannot display enough bad judgment quickly enough. (laughs) So. He just, he almost, he almost needs to get an extra staff of people just to make boneheaded errors as often as he does. (laughs) (laughs) But Howard Hughes is a fascinating character. Mm -hmm. And I think Leonardo DiCaprio does such an incredible job. A couple of things. Martin Scorsese actually throughout the course of the movie changed the coloring of the movie to match the time period. Oh, the golf course. The golf course is so crazy. Now, I read this trivia after watching it again last night. Is there an official, official, official reason why certain scenes are graded? So it's weird because now you watch something like AP Bio or to a lesser extent. I was talking to Alex about this, my friend Alex, who I do a podcast with. Talking about how like AP Bio and to a lesser extent, Mr. Mayor, they're so weird looking on a big TV. Right. And I wonder if stuff is graded now to like look good on a phone mm. or or a tablet to be really pop and be bright. Right. But the this is I feel like at least in the conventional wisdom I've heard it said that modern color grading, digital color grading, started with "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?" and the work of Roger Deakins. Oh. And so if you go and watch that, it's very unusual looking for two thousand one. But in this one. Yeah, especially in the 30s, especially the scene on the golf course. Right. It's version. You know that phrase Perkinji shift, like at, at dusk? Yes. When your rods and cones mm-hmm. are changing over and everything has that weird quality of the golden hour to it. Exactly. I, I, I The scenes on the golf course, I, I, I'm tempted to go and like correct the color on the TV. Do we officially know what that officially <laughs> quote unquote means? Why the color was like that? Well, I've heard a bunch of people say, oh, you know, he did that for a reason. I'll be like, well, okay, that makes a lot of sense. He's a smart guy. What is it for? He wanted to grade the time that the scene was happening in the movie to look like how film would have looked like in that day. Similar to the way that today Wes Anderson will do different aspect ratios um, in like um, Budapest. Exactly. And so one scene they talk about is when he's about to eat and there's like the peas and the the peas are blue. They are literally blue. The peas are blue, which I guess is how they would have appeared in two strip Technicolor process, which would have been the filmmaking. Oh, I see. Like a, like a duo tone almost. Yeah, exactly. I get it. Okay. That's, that's, scene also again Leonardo DiCaprio's performance of the slow descent into madness that I think was like the first time we really see he is disgusted that this guy grabbed a pea off his plate and he is not going to eat it absolutely and then I feel like then the next big one is like when he's in the theater sort of the screening room like watching yes oh I think we do play a shot in real whatever you know keep watching that scene from Hell's Angels run real 10 again I think we're duplicating a shot here and tell Jimmy I want 10 chocolate chip cookies all right, medium chips, none too close to the outside. Uh, can, let me just get one thing out real quick, and then I'll be done with this, and I will I will throw it totally back to you. What happened? What what had happened was I don't know how this happened. It was probably one of those publishers clearinghouse things where you get you know uh, you get to you get a chance to win a Buick if you subscribe to magazines for whatever reason. For a couple of years, my mom had subscribed to Time Magazine, <laughs> and this is kind of a funny story. I knew I knew Howard. Here's what I knew: I knew Howard Hughes was all the things I described. I knew Howard Hughes had died. I knew there was a kerfuffle about Howard Hughes's quote-unquote will, which is to say what the dispensation, I don't know what the word is, but like how his estate should be allotted to people. And there were all these different wills. And then there's that movie with Jason Robards, what's it called, Melvin and Howard, Mm. that came out. But anyway, one day, one day, a Time Magazine, the week, that week's Time Magazine arrived at our house. And I can still remember it so clearly there's a there's it's a like a like a painting almost like a bilson kevich kind of like sketchy painting not sketchy bad but like you know kind of slightly abstract mm-hmm, uh right. roy neiman maybe kind of feeling and it's this guy this big bulky guy who looked like stalin carrying this decrepit skinny old man who looked like he was like his skin was about to slide off of his bones Oof. carrying this guy and I was like what is this and um, it was like oh you know the uh, the uh, the estate of Howard Hughes blah 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 and so it was this article that I think was got fairly well known at the time that included all these amazing paintings slash drawings and I read that story that is the story just to be clear <laughs> why does this matter not the Stalin guy the uh, who I think was the author of the story it was a guy who'd been Howard's helper at the Sands mm. or wherever he lived. The desert. The desert, probably. Yeah, yeah. Top floor of the desert was it? But he. Um, but this is where we first learned about 
a lot of things. This is where we first learned about the long hair. Yes. This is where we first learned about the crazy, like the fingernails and toenails. This is where we first... You'd only cut them once a year, once a year. Right. This is where we learned about the jars, and it's where we learned about watching Ice Station Zebra. Right. And I was like, oh my God. Because you know, you're like a little kid and you look up a dirty word in the dictionary, or you're like, <laughs> you know, you, you, you look up bosom yeah. in the encyclopedia, and, you're like, <laughs> and this is like that. This was like in, in my, you know, non-denominational Christian household, we did not have a lot of literature around that wasn't about like statuary or right. something, and, <laughs> um, you know, or sales. <laughs> and to have, this was such a big deal, and I became kind of obsessed. Stephen, flash forward, Last calendar year, mm. I located a copy, a physical copy of that Time magazine. Oh my goodness! And I have it, <laughs> I have it at my home right now, bagged and boarded to eventually, <laughs> to eventually frame? be framed. Are you gonna frame yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I felt so, I, I showed it to yes. my kid, and of course, the best part for my kid was all the ads for cigarettes and stereos. Oh, and, oh, and yes. Chivas Regal or whatever. That's how it started, and then then okay. I had a you know what Freud called a, a latent period for many years, and then when that movie came out, you know, hey, it's that kid from uh, Titanic, and uh, you know. He's playing uh, that guy that I was, was Gilbert Grape. With, Gilbert yeah. Grape was his big breakout role, but right, right, and I got pretty obsessed with it. You know, it's so sad because it's about mental illness and really seeing how it is affecting this one man. Yeah, but there's also that element of whatever the human psyche that when you see a train wreck, you know, you just can't help but see it, mm-hmm. and you wonder like, are all these weird aspects of this person true? And honestly, The Aviator, Martin Scorsese was almost criticized a little bit for not showing the extent of what Howard Hughes was like at the end of his life. Yeah, it's it, my sense is that there was not really much of a bottom. That as weird as it ever seemed right. at a given time, it could get stranger. And he had the resources. And I, I'm sure this is the only time in history something like this has ever happened. But the people who did surround him, such as they did, their job, their their future relied on catering to his whims about whether that's chocolate right. chips or wearing gloves or lids from bottles of milk or whatever it was. And nobody was going to go, hey, Howard, it seems like maybe you should, you know, maybe you should talk to somebody about this. Do you really want to be naked in, in a movie theater for the rest of your life peeing in jars? Right. You used to be the handsomest man in Albany, New York. <laughs> so one, and one story, tell me if you've heard this, but yeah. later in life when he was holed up at the Desert Inn, apparently he would only eat Baskin Robbins banana nut ice cream. This is a true story. Jeez. And Baskin Robbins discontinued the flavor <gasps> and Howard Hughes' employees oh freaked out. And Baskin Robbins said they would only manufacture that flavor if they do it in 350 gallon batches. And so two of Howard Hughes' employees literally drove to Los Angeles got that much ice cream, put it in the freezers of the Desert Inn Hotel, and that day, Howard Hughes says, I'm changing to French vanilla. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I like French vanilla. I would buy those off them. <laughs> but, yeah. like, but in terms of the goods, I thought, I, I, if I heard that, I've forgotten it. But just to, yeah. to piggyback on that, in terms of the good storytelling, right. going to Louis Mayer and admitting that he thinks he needs 26 cameras. Right. Well, nobody needs 26 cameras. I mean, right. if you had five cameras, it would be too many cameras. Right. Like, you know, back then, I mean, how many cameras would you have? I understand the idea of wanting to minimize the expense. You get the, uh, oh God, the guy from Alien, yeah, Ian Holm, right? Yeah. The, and the way he would keep going around and around, he wants to reshoot it. Oh, for audio. After, reshoot for, for audio. yeah, yeah, yeah. And from the beginning, and it's like, it's all so, and then poor John C. Riley. But I guess what I'm saying is like, when you hear an anecdote about somebody wanting this particular kind of ice cream and being willing to do extraordinary things to get it, well, we see that in, 28 probably right 1928 we see him needing 26 planes and saying the same to Louis Mayer Mr. Mayer we call him that's crazy oh without the actual cam well we're not usually in the practice of helping out the competition ah so how many cameras do you have now 24 you don't think you got it with 24 no no sir but the movie almost justifies it because there's a scene where they're actually filming Hell's Angels and Howard Hughes is literally in the plane filming himself and you see I know. another plane knock the camera off the wing and Howard Hughes literally seemingly out of his pocket pulls out another camera to continue filming while they're all in the air and it's almost like huh maybe he was justified in wanting those two more cameras I'm not sure it reminds you a little bit of another Scorsese character almost like a Travis Bickle where he's got like his ankle mm. gun ankle pistol or whatever <laughs> right but the um <laughs> 
there's a part of this that I don't, I don't want to crush the bunny, but one thing I think it's interesting, you might have noticed that, that seemingly odd choice of words, what he thinks he needs or what he thinks he wants. Right. I think that's really important in life. Is mm. the, There are people who are very um, very quick to tell you what they need. They're, they're very quick to tell you what they have to do. Right. And like I would consider a rephrase of that, which is, well, this is what you think you need, and this is what you think you have to do. You don't actually have to do anything but die, if we're being honest here. But okay, fine, you do you. <laughs> But that's the interesting thing. I get that at that time, that was such a young art form. Right. I mean, obviously, a lot, already a lot had happened. I mean, by the time of Charlie Chaplin, it was already like a fairly mature form uh, as as a medium. And they had the presence of mind to say, well, let's go to, you know, California, get away from all these patent people in, in New Jersey. Uh, but anyway, I, I think what's interesting about it, though, is, and this is, feels instructive, one of the little instructions in this movie is like, well, that's what he thinks he needs, it's what he thinks he has to do. What is it, what is the thing that he's trying to achieve mm. that he couldn't get through a different means that might be less stressful for everyone involved? Doesn't matter, because he's decided he needs 26 cameras. Not 24. Right. How many chocolate chips does he want on the cookie? He's very specific about that, too. And I'm not saying this. This is not I'm not trying to make light of this and go, oh, he's goofy and comes up with some arbitrary number. It's just that we're seeing even in I realize we should get past the first five minutes of this. But the but we're we're, what we're seeing and this is so important to me, like the the stuff with his mom at the beginning. I mean, heartbreaking, but you get it. She's trying to protect him. I went through this with my mom was crazy protective. She didn't make me spell quarantine, but right. she didn't want me going outside, playing in the woods, doing anything. She'd lost her husband. She didn't want to lose her son, mm. like to 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 the cholera or the typhus. Right. But but there's something so instructive to me in that there's so many little instances of him because of the success of what he was doing, because of his charisma, because of these things, he could demand something that seemed unconventional, but because he was surrounded by really talented people. He was making something good and unusual in an anomalous way. The results made people go, oh, well, maybe he's not so crazy. Maybe everybody should right. be shooting with 26 cameras, which of course they shouldn't be shooting with 26. I mean, right. today, if you shot anything with 26 cameras, you'd be, I mean, typically when you shoot like at least the classic sort of sitcom stuff, it's one camera or three cameras, full stop. Right. There are right. very few sitcoms that need nine cameras because you would actually then create so much footage. Oh, yeah. It would be in a pre-digital how would you see follow me though is like he wasn't focused on an outcome he was focused on getting what he thought he needed and as an anxious person i appreciate or i'm sympathetic to the idea that the thing we think we want is often very much not the thing we need Mm. in my case i'm the kind of anxious where i'm constantly seeking a combination of new and complete information which I'll spoil the ending for you doesn't exist (laughs) all new information gives you is the realization that you how much more information you need Mm. in his case is it the 26 cameras title is it the 26 cameras that made Hell's Angels good and unusual maybe or maybe it was in spite of that not because of that Mm. and that's what we see play out through the rest of his life the extremity of everything that he's doing feels based in something that keeps him safe yes because he'll never be safe and so but getting those mm. those two more cameras from lb mayor right. is what he needs to finish this movie until he decides to start it completely over so he's working across <laughs> purposes with himself all the time and you know john c Riley's yeah. supposed to go out there and uh, sell the drill bits well that's what i was going to say is it's fascinating because john c Riley, which i think does a great job in this movie tries to be the voice of reason i mean he's literally handling the money he's basically like the doctor's companion he's he, he exists right. in some ways to pr- be the voice of the audience and to provide some context for what's so crazy about what Howard is trying to do. Right, which Howard never really acknowledges the challenges or the concerns. He predicates hiring, I forget the guy's name, but John C. Riley, I love that actor. He predicates hiring him on the fact that you have to go back to Houston and tell him you work for me and they got to do what I say. Yeah, exactly. Or just sell Toolco. What? (laughs) Right. Are you crazy? Don't Mortgage. He says mortgage it. That's so insane. You're my voice now. Make them understand that. Look, some of those fine folks down there still call me Junior. You tell them it's Mr. Hughes now. You bet. Which is then fascinating because of all the characters that can actually speak into Howard Hughes and what he does is Catherine Hepburn, played by Kate Blanchett, who yes. won one of the five Oscars for this movie. She won Best Supporting Role. Did she? She totally yes. deserves it. She's oh, wonderful yeah. in this. Yeah, it won five Oscars, one Kate Blanchett for Supporting Role, Cinematography also, and then three others. But seeing them, we typically do something on the show called Romance Corner, which mm-hmm. we, will, we will then analyze a relationship of two of the characters. And I find 
that Catherine Hepburn and Howard Hughes, all of their interactions, so fascinating. Even Absolutely. from that first golf course scene where she says, I sweat and you're deaf. That's what we've learned today. Right. So good. There it is. Now we both know the sort of truth. I sweat and you're deaf. Aren't we a fine pair of misfits? When, when it were like they very first meet on the beach, but they, they um, I mean, again, I, I have no way, I have no insight into how much of this is accurate or as some people like to say true, right. but I, I like the story and here's the story. She was the phrase box office poison that she mentions, I think at dinner that night, mm, that was yes. literally what they called her. Like her and, uh, not Faye Dunaway, who am I thinking of? Who's um, Mommy Dearest? Her and Joan Crawford, oh. two people that were famous for having some measure of success in silence and early talkies, I guess, but Catherine Hepburn, who I think had been mostly a stage actress, mm. was that's the phrase they used. That her and Joan Crawford, two things we refer to them as box office poison. You're never going to work here again, right? Mm-hmm. She wasn't taken seriously by by other people. She was seen as a has been. But what's interesting is, and again, in terms of the what we want and what we need, what we think we need, at least in the telling of this story, there's something they see in each other. Yes, which is she she has something to offer him that's not the thing that every man wants. Mm. Which yeah, you could think get in her pants, but no, what they really want is to like probably dominate her. Mm. He doesn't want to do that. Right, he may want to dominate the girl with the thin lip at the at the restaurant, but oh, yes. but he's but they offer each other something complimentary in a way that I think you could fairly say is probably five times even more with. Spencer uh, Tracy a few years later. Right. They, they're offering, like, but, but they're there to be supportive. And Catherine Hepburn, like, she doesn't want to be his mother, but she's willing to be his partner. And it's only at the times mm. where things fall down and he starts, he seems to start lacking the requisite respect that she needs to respect him. That's when things really start falling apart. Yeah. But even things falling apart doesn't mean she doesn't have feelings for him anymore or he, her. Right. And one of my my favorite scenes, which is also anxiety inducing, is the dinner scene where Catherine Hepburn brings Howard Hughes to her family. Oh, my God. And it is just a fascinating crosstalk of conversation. It's so well done. It's so so good. It's such an interesting approach to take. Now, the way the way a lot of directors would do that today would be a a straight homage to Robert Altman, Mm. where there would be like more overlapping dialogue. But that is as somebody who's constantly interrupting people on podcasts. I can really appreciate the way they interleave that conversation enough that you feel the chaos but you still as with a good fight scene understand what's happening like there's the dog there's the brother here's the thing and now Howard's gonna leave and I feel like that when I'm with my wife's family they're very upsetting to me <laughs> it was quite aesthetic really a, a sacred monster that's what Picasso the birds is didn't care for it much but the bats do oh, oh that's such well. oh, speak up dear nothing nothing Mrs. Hepburn nothing then why did you speak I can't abide people who speak but have nothing to say. Did you go to mechanic school to learn all this? I wonder if there is an alternate universe where Catherine Hepburn and Howard Hughes stayed together and he did not descend into as deep a madness as he did. Do you think that she might have staved off some of that insanity? I don't know. That's a really, that's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know. It, I mean, it was it fair to say, I'm not changing the topic, but is it fair to say that like, yeah. so he had his accident in the beet field and then he had that crazy accident, right. you know, where he hits the house. Wild. And, and is it fair to say that in, at least in the way the movie is told, that's really the turning point of turning points in the movie. That's when things go from he's a little unusual to like, he's really traumatized and now he's getting, he's fully inhabiting a certain kind of weirdness after the second accident, right? Yes. Fair, kind of. Kind of, and the, the one detail that I learned from IMDb, at least, is that when he locked himself away for four months, that actually happens after the Senate hearings, like in real life, in real life events. Mm, it's just better for the storytelling for him to be fighting. Right. Fighting that at the time. Right, exactly. So he, I guess his, his kind of real struggles occurred later in life, after the Senate hearings and all that. It says, in 1958, that's when he actually locked himself away for four months and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, yeah, the movie kind of makes it seem like those are really the inciting incidents which i'm sure they sure. did have a huge impact i mean he almost died well and like think about like cutting his lip i guess where he had to grow the mustache oh but like you know I, again and i all i can speak to here is like the, the part that's on the screen like i don't have any special insight into all of that yeah. to answer your question though i don't i don't know what the answer to that is like i mentioned in passing what did you say somebody asked was it rockefeller how much money's enough is that what you said yeah just just a little more just yeah. a little more and I, I made a crack about steve jobs because in my time uh, 
over the years, I've really tried to understand, I don't know, I think it's interesting to try to understand people who don't seem understandable. Right. And one thing, a group of people that I find difficult to understand is extremely wealthy, wealthy people, um, especially extremely wealthy people who continue the pace of obtaining wealth that a poor kid from Ohio would go, well, geez, why don't you just relax and enjoy it? Like, why do you need to keep doing this? And right. Keep traveling. Like, every time you get on a, on a plane, you're taking your life in your hands. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, there's just all this stuff where it's like, and, but then like, through somebody like Steve Jobs, well, what if we say to ourselves, well, this is really not about, in Steve Jobs' case, or similar, it doesn't have to be Steve Jobs, but yeah. just that, that there, I would look at somebody who's been very successful and has, you know, created products that have changed people's lives and changed industries, and but they keep, they're still chasing the dragon. Right. And maybe that is a way to look at it, where it's not in the same way, so I'm doing some several big pivots and bounces here. Um, but no, but like, like there's it. a little boy in Texas that grows up worried about getting typhus. Right. And he's told he will never be safe. And he obtains safety through various kinds of control. Mm-hmm. Right. And through pursuing the things that most interest him, right? Like like any kind of young dilettante. I, I'm, I've, just started, I've just, just, just started watching The Gilded Age, and there's kind of similar themes in that. Mm. Anyhow... Uh, why is this pivot happening? Because I get the idea that you're never safe. And I get the idea that the information you just got and gave you that little bit of relief, I'm not going to die right now. Mm. Like, you know, again, I'm speaking here as somebody with anxiety. And like, uh, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is I used to think that if as long as I could get some information, I could uh, get some more information and get more updated information and get a whole, oh, how do I know this is all of the information? Mm. See, also show me all the blueprints. Show me all the blueprints. How, this is a different thing, but it is related. Why does Steve Jobs want to keep making uh, new devices? Why does Howard Hughes want to get faster and go faster in a plane? Why does he want two more cameras to shoot this? You know, why does Elon Musk uh, want to go to Mars? Be, be how he is. But like, because <laughs> you're sure. never done. And as that, as that kid, and now this man, such as I am with anxiety, I get that. I get that you, there's never a time where you go, well, I guess we're good here. You know, I guess we're done. I made right. the iPhone. So now I'm just going to go sit in the pool. Because that does not give that person what they think they need yeah. or what they what they believe they want. Right. And what they believe they want is this constant sense of forward propulsion, whether that's for new information, new devices, or new things. And I realize that that's an impossibly uh, oversimplified way to look at it, but that helps, if that's partly true, that's something I can understand. And I could see Howard Hughes being somebody who like, Okay, here we go. Here's the corollary. How, when they come and they're searching his house. Oh, yeah. And he's so, he has lo- he has no control over what is happening. And they're right. all doing things that most push his buttons. Same way that Alan Alda gives him the trout, knowing that that's going to push his buttons. He's out of control. He can fake it for a while, but like he needs to get back to being this particular kind of person who's getting what he needs or he can't feel even partially safe or partially whole. And I get that. Right. And I think what makes him so fascinating is the level of success he achieved while seemingly just sacrificing his own wealth. It's contrast to Alec Baldwin, who's playing Juan Trip of Pan Am Airways, and Alan Alda, the senator. <laughs> and it's like, you see those rich guys, and it's like, I get that character because they're just... I guess you could say greedy or, you know, ruthless. And they're just trying to get as much money as they can and trying to crush any competition in the process. So why does, why does Mitch McConnell want so many judges? Well, because that's, well, that's his... <laughs> no, no, I'm, being, I'm, not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to be controversial. Everybody's got the thing they want or the thing they think they want. Right. Mitch McConnell wants a lot of judges. Judges to do what? Mm-hmm. Just, I really, my, I, I sometimes really feel like we overanalyze some of these people, whether it's Elon Musk or, you know what I mean? There's, everybody's yeah, got yeah, these yeah. things that they want, you know? And whenever I don't understand somebody, I, I assume that it's because of money, fear, or both. Right. And once you start walking, and money is often based on fear, and the further you start walking down fear, the more you see something, when you see things that don't make sense to you, it's useful to start understanding how that makes them feel less fear, how that makes them feel more safe. Right. Well, I'm sorry, I sound like a nut at this point. 
No, no. And I think I think that contrast, at least with the characters in this movie, mm-hmm. in that court scene, the Senate hearing. <laughs> Which is, I'm sure, is exactly how it went. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'll accept whatever poetic license is used in that sure. scene because it was worth it. You know, that scene, Howard Hughes ends by talking about why he spent a ton of his own money investing in his own airlines and his own research and his own military planes. And it's that thing where, yeah, okay, Juan Tripp and Senator Ralph Brewster, like, they want money and they want power like that's their motivation is ralph brewster alan alda yes alan alda yeah okay and then howard hughes i i mean as i don't know as innocent as it seems like he just wants to make really cool planes that go really fast and make really big ones that no one says he can make and it like i believe that kind of motivation that that's what howard hughes actually wants see the thing is i care very much about aviation It has been the great joy of my life. That's why I put my own money in these planes, and I've lost millions, Senator Brewster, and I'll go on losing millions. It's just what I do. I I do, too. Can I I lob a a total audible? Just because I I will feel so dumb and weird if I skip past my favorite thing about this movie. Oh, please. I think. Uh, I mean, there's a lot I like about this movie, things we've talked about, but the way people look... The way people act. Yes. I said to my my wife last night, um, you know, at the Coconut Grove, like when the guy's up there singing <laughs> and I'm like, um, yes. I was like, oh my God, I want to take an online course on how to move like someone from the 30s. <laughs> Whether that's like Vince Giordano at the piano or Rufus Wainwright yes. swaying, you know, while he's, just the way people look. And this even goes back to actually one of my favorite Twitter headers, go back to Taxi Driver. There's that guy on the street in Taxi Driver with the slick back hair playing the drums, impersonating all the different jazz drummers. Mm. Scorsese has such a way, such a style Think about the way, like, for example, the way that um, the weird uh, dolly zoom that they do, and not weird, but the dolly zoom in mm. Goodfellas, where you see the phone booth in the background, mm. or like these kind of like this fast as above. I don't know. Thelma Schoonmaker is his editor, so this would not be mm. the editor. This would be, I guess, probably the DP, but those above shots in Taxi Driver, where yeah. Travis slowly waves his hand across, uh, what's her name, um, Sybil Shepherd's desk. I see all this stuff here. It's just, or like those fast, like a fast zoom, like a, a pop and zoom on Jimmy in Goodfellas. <laughs> There's something so stylish and so basically Martin Scorsese about some of these things to me. And I feel like this, the pageantry in this and the way that he sews together a combination of characterization, visuals, yes. music, costume. It's, and it just feels, it's like almost, it's, obviously it's not a one in any sense of the word, but it's really almost feels, I think it's what uh, the guy from Strong Songs would call what does he call it? Composed through? Mm. Like, there's not a verse and a chorus to this movie. Like, this movie is more like a Bohemian Rhapsody than a She Loves You. <laughs> but it's constantly right. propelling itself forward yeah. without cute tricks, without dumb match cuts, that kind of stuff. It's, it's not mm. gimmicky, but there's just, there's a feel... There's a feel of propulsion and inevitability yes. in this movie that is served mm. by things like the editing and served by the thing of these re- the reappearance of this this muted trumpet sound. I, I know you're a trumpet boy. That's right. That for the rest of my life, when I hear muted trumpets uh, in certain cadences, I'm going to think of this movie. Yeah. And then by the time it's over, you're like, I can't believe this movie's done. I just, I love the way this movie looks and feels. I think it's, yes. you can get so involved in the characterizations, the popping flash bulbs. There's just so much about it that's, I, I just, I love the way this movie looks and feels. Well, we are, we are dangerously close to reviewing it, which we typically review on a scale of zero to five something. Oh, sure. Oh, and I also, I also have a fun fact before we go, a trivia thing that I realized last night that's pretty crazy. So let me ask you this. The ending of this movie, I had not seen it for a while. Is the ending, ending's way of the future? The ending is the way of the future. Okay. He's in the bathroom. He's kind of repeating it. <clears throat> Need to sleep. <laughs> <clears throat> the, the throat, <clears throat> I feel like the throat clearing deserves an Oscar he on its own. first stars with the first time he does it. You don't notice it, but like. <laughs> you don't notice it. The throat clearing was a performance <laughs> in itself. It's so good. <clears throat> <laughs> What's well, that on your steering wheel, Howard? Cellophane. <laughs> You know, those things are all over people's hands. <laughs> Let's say, uh, JC Pennies or Woolworths? Jay, uh, make Better penny, make it serious. Make, make it serious. <laughs> That's it. Okay, yeah, yeah. Make it serious. Howard. Listen, I, I need those suits first thing tomorrow, all right? <clears throat> all right. Wait, wait. Did I say Pennies or Woolworths? Pennies. Better make it serious. 
before we officially give it a, a zero to five star rating, the la- the ending, uh-huh. I learned after watching this movie, there was a whole part of Howard Hughes's life where he buys the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, right. truly becomes a recluse. There's like a whole part of his Sets life. Sets up his screen and watches uh, Ice Station Zebra every single day. <laughs> Every single day, he's not cutting his nails or hair. Like, that whole part, which, again, would take a whole other movie, probably, like A Godfather Part Two. But I don't know if anybody wants to see an Aviator 2 with just that part of the story. Well, I I think that would, like, there's enough of it in this, and the way that it's displayed is so stylish, like the lined-up bottles. But it would turn into a little bit, uh, I don't know what my French lit teacher might call Grand Guignol. Like, it would be so gross, Mm. and, like, it could get into, like, Saw territory if you went too far (laughs) with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I yeah, they, yeah, anyway, yeah, so the end. But with that in, but with that in mind, do you find the end satisfying? Like when this move when the credits roll, do you feel like okay, that's the move? At uh, this particular time of the, I don't know, 10 times I've seen this movie, I I only watched the first, I only had time to watch the first third last night, for which I apologize, but um I'm I seem to remember it the way I remember it ending and please help me generously here yeah, yeah. is that he has had some kind of a success with the Hercules flies the Her- the Hercules, Hercules flies, flies. And, he, and then he's talking to I want to say the press about how this yes. this plane represents the way of the future that's right and he says it again starts saying it and yeah. then you can see the anguish on his face as he can't stop saying it correct and then i think the compulsive part is much more interesting when you understand the obsessive part mm. which is like of ocd which is like if i if i say this one more time i won't have to say it again oh no i just said right, it again and now right. i can say it three more times and i don't know why i checked the oven three times yeah i'll just check it one more and then it'll be enough but that doesn't it doesn't help it makes it right. worse and that's the problem right. and then i remember him like kind of drifting off and like, am I remembering right? Is there anything after that part? He's in the bathroom and he keeps saying it. Like in the mirror or something, maybe? John C. Riley, yeah, he, he walks away saying, no one sees him like this. Oh, yes, I do love that. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And then the credits roll. I mean, he's in the bathroom by himself. John C. Riley is walking out. We get a top-down shot, I think, of John C. Riley walking back to the press tent and credits roll. That's it. We have the future. The way of the future. The way of the future. The way of the future. I guess I forgot that it ended there. So when it ended, it felt abrupt. Someone abruptly. I was like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's closure or not. I don't know. And maybe it's not meant to give you closure. Maybe it's meant to have you. Well, I mean, in some ways, it's a nice um, bookend. Is way too strong of a word, but it's 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 a pretty good bookend with the beginning. Mm, that's right. True. The fact his mom's washing him with this creepy black soap, and like the yeah. very first, I just that really struck me this time. I keep repeating that line, but you know, she that does end up talking about you know the colors and the cholera and the typhus, and right. do, you, do you know what that does to to you. Mm. And when she says that, right before she says you're not, I think she, the line is you're not safe. But the way she says something like, do you know what that does to you? Like it really, and she goes, he goes, yes, mother. Yes, mother. Right. And I, I was just thinking about how like, I, I, I can kind of infer what that means. But given what we'll learn about him over the next couple hours, it really seems like she's made it clear to him that there are things in life that have integrity mm. and things in life that do not have integrity. And it's kind of a shame that word has mm. come to be so heavily associated, values associated with a certain thing. Well, integrity means right. wholeness. Like a glass has integrity if it doesn't have glass, you know, cracks or is broken. But right. And the mother is ultimately saying the most depressing thing to him, which is like in the same way that those, let's be honest, what she's implying is the reason black people get cholera or typhus because they're black people mm. and they don't have bodily integrity mm. you understand that don't you howard that you've got to keep your bodily integrity otherwise do you know what that typhus does to you mm. and i don't know what it does to you or i don't know what cholera does to you but i mean right. red marquez but still like uh, but but him she, her saying that to him is like let your mind run wild about all the ways you'll never be able to protect yourself Oof. and like learn to develop like what he walks away with in some ways without a name for it i imagine is that you're going to have to find coping mechanisms for keeping the, as, as John Roderick and I might say, keeping the demon dogs at bay. You will never be safe. Mm-hmm. Good luck. And then at the end, when he gets stuck on saying that, and you can just see the pain, the like, I just feel like we're watching him being torn apart because mm. he can't stop. Right. And he kind of wants to stop. It can be a form of self-soothing, but he's so emotionally raw mm. from this repetition but he's it's he still can't stop and you just see him squinting right. in his eyes and i think it's a good ending yeah yeah that's powerful did you know there's three wainwrights in this movie <laughs> i only caught this last night <laughs> no. okay 
Okay, so I was a huge fan. Um, my friend Michael used to make me tapes. He made me this tape in 1999 of the, at the time, new Rufus Wainwright album. Mm. Um, I don't want to hold you and feel so <laughs> helpless. It's a really good record. <laughs> and he is the, I just checked IMDb to make sure I got this right. I cannot believe this. I've known since the first time I saw it, obviously that's Rufus Wainwright. He's the best and gayest singer in the world. Rufus Wainwright is like a genius. Mm. He is, I believe, Coconut Grove singer number one. Uh-huh. And then what I noticed last <laughs> night, later on at a different time, yes. there's somebody else on stage. And uh, my family, just so you know, Stephen, my family loves when I do things like this. I go, wait a minute, stop. <laughs> Pause the movie. I said, oh my God. And then I, I hit the bloop and I went back one. I was like, that's totally Loudon Wainwright the third. That's totally Rufus Wainwright's <laughs> father. Do you know this? Did you know this? I did not know this. As Coconut Grove singer number th- number two. And guess who wow. Coconut Grove singer number three is? His sister, mm. Martha, who sings Whoa. on his first album also. That's pretty slick. One, two, three. That's a nice Easter egg. I just had to get that's that in so I feel right smart. There. Way of the future. Yeah, that's pretty. That's the way of the future. Way of the future. Show me all the blueprints. Show well, me, let me get the right. Show me all the blueprints. <laughs> I shouldn't hold the cap in my left hand. <laughs> oh God, should, it's so oh, brutal. Oh. It's so. And so this this is going to play into into my review of it. Final judgments. Yes, final judgments on a scale of zero to five tissues, because I feel like that's the tissues. Oh yes. <laughs> oh, in terms of crying or in terms of. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, typically, every episode, we choose a random object from I'm a movie. I'm sorry. Typically, I'm a small okay. object. No, no, no. I think it's mm-hmm, great. Mm-hmm. And uh, a small, obscure object. Oh, a tissue that you would use to, like as a paddle to handle something. Exactly. Aha! And- <laughs> I thought you meant... Okay. Wow. <laughs> yes, yes. I want to get this yes. done right. Okay. Yes, so on a scale of zero to five tissues, as in Kleenex, uh, how would you rate the aviator? Uh, Stephen, it's so useless. I mean, if I had to just pick one out of the air for one and a half, uh, I like it a lot. I think it's got incredible repeat viewing um, satisfaction to me. Um, th- I mean, I th- I think it's really, really well done. What do you get? How many tissues do you give it? I, w- I would give it four out of five. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I would be deducting it for. I see. I love facets. I love. It's facets. an incredible movie. Yeah. Rewatchability, though. I mean, it's so heavy towards the second half. It's like, I don't know if, if I want to see Leonardo DiCaprio naked in a movie theater a lot. <laughs> you know, I would. Well, I think you, you don't understand America's youth as well as uh, <laughs> oh, Scorchio does. Fingers, yeah. fingers not on the pulse. <laughs> well, so, so I mean, to like, speak, yeah. <laughs> rewatchability, I'll, I'm sure I'll see this again sometime. And it's an incredible movie. Obviously, five Oscars, all that. Cate Blanchett's incredible. Yeah, I, I spaced on all of that. Do, do you have a favorite um, Scorchio? Well, I mean, do you have a. Surprising favorite uh, Scorcho movie, also a Scorsese movie. Oh goodness, I feel uh, not qualified. I don't think I've seen enough to uh, to know. It's interesting. His range is pretty wild. Like he did, what was it? Um, uh, Age of Innocence was that him? Like he's he's done like such an interesting he, range. Wolf of Wall Street. Here. Yeah. So I popped that up last night just because my kid and I are both obsessed with. Um, various things related to Margot Robbie <laughs> and uh, including Harley Quinn and the wonderful movie, The Suicide Squad. Right, um, right. And I was just like, I like, I know I can't really in good conscience show even my perverted kid this movie, but I was like, I just want to show you this real quick, you know, because we'd just been watching The Aviator because of me visiting with your program. And I was like, let me just show you something real quick. And I pop it open and it's the scene where Jordan is, I don't know a way to say this that's not horrible. They're doing a sure. dwar- a coked up dwarf tossing competition wow they've hired dwarves to come into their investment company and they're throwing them at velcro and then a quick cut to margot robbie laying on a bed and 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 then i had to cut it off immediately because there's some cocaine and butts involved but um and even i'm not okay with that but uh it's so interesting to me what he can you take the kid from gilbert grape and titanic and you're able to get you look at shutter island you know you look at like just what he can get the different things he can get out of actors that aren't just Robert De Niro, or especially not Robert De Niro. He's so gifted. His movies make you feel so many things. Yeah. And it's tough because I think a lot of movies, in modern movies, don't make you feel that many things that conflict. He, he loves Frank Capra. I think he's a real scholar and fan of Frank Capra, but boy, does he ever introduce a lot more. I mean, if there's anybody we credit, 
I think even more than Coppola, the person we credit with the popularization of the antihero, maybe Cassavetes, but right. it's it's Scorsese, it's Travis Bickle, it's like that run in the seventies of like Serpico, those kinds of movies. I wish right. I know he didn't do, but like he is partly or hugely responsible for the growth of the seventies antihero right. in movies. And like what makes an antihero interesting is not particularly the anti or the hero part; it is the complexity all in one ball of weirdness. Yes. Is Travis Bickle a hero? Yeah, but also not really. Like somebody would have died because of Travis Bickle's hand, probably. It's just that it right. turned out that it was he was helping Iris. And speaking of weirdness, uh, your co-host from You Look Nice Today, Adam Lissagor, mm-hmm. has been on this show twice. I know him. Yes. Uh, he did Cloud Atlas with us, but his first movie was The King of Comedy, directed by Martin Scorsese. And like this one, it's like... You want to see my pride yeah. and joy? <laughs> I love that movie. I I think Sandra Bernhardt is magic in that movie. Absolutely. And Jerry Lewis, I think his performance in that is astonishing. Again, it's an incredible movie. I don't know how much desire I have to like pop it in and and stream it again. You know, it's very my family. I'm the only one in my family that straight up enjoys cringe comedy. Right. You know, whether that's whether that's The Office or like, you know, I don't know, I guess Young Ones or whatever it is. But like that movie is tough the scene when they're yes. at uh not johnny carson when they're jerry lewis's house oh my, yes. and she doesn't realize that they weren't invited right exactly it's yeah. so difficult that's oh. such a difficult movie i feel like movies don't make you feel that nowadays though like you don't feel that uncomfortable watching i don't know most modern dramas even. no 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 and you ha- i mean but if you watch something like for example like i say i just all i want i'm a huge carrie coon fan i just i love that actress so much i love her so much in um the HBO show I love, uh, the uh, the uh, the leftovers. Yes, um, she's so great in everything. But the Gilded Age is so interesting, and the reason I ended up watching it is I, I Downton Abbey's fine. But somebody I, I follow on Twitter was saying, oh, you know, oh, it's this is better than Downton Abbey because it's about sweaty thirsty Americans trying to social climb, right? And so it's these, these people trying to become accepted by old money, the Astors, all the old you know, Dutch families trying to be accepted in 1800s uh, New York, Manhattan. Right. And so, right. but like, it's, it's so keening, it's so thirsty, but it's also so mannered. And if I can say without sounding unkind, <laughs> it does remind me a little bit about when I lived in the South, particularly in North Florida, where like there was a lot that you said or didn't say with what you said or didn't say. Yes. And all the things that you could ask about, oh, you're building that large house at that intersection <laughs> it has so oh, much, yes. you know, it's the, when I say manner, right? Like a drawing room comedy like, right. or like, a, like an old like uh, Lady Windermere's fan, like an old Oscar Wilde play. But there's something that's everybody knows what's happening. And right. because of that, no one can talk about what's actually happening, which is exactly. that this is about old money versus new money. And Christine Bransky says, you know, you're not allowed to go to that party. You cannot be seen with new money. <laughs> and like, you, that's where you have to go now often to find things like that because, well, because we're really ultimately closer to idiocracy, you know, kind of stuff. Like we don't have the, the manners for that. But I love this movie. I recommend it to people. It's long. It's beautiful. At points, it's too blue. It's got Adam Scott. It's got Minnie Wainwrights. The music is wonderful. Yes. Um, I love it. I, I think you didn't give it enough Kleenex, but th- that's just my prerogative <laughs> as a guest. I, I would give it, sure. I'm going to give it five because then, you know, John Serkis will criticize me for being too easy as a Kleenex critter. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Merlin Mann, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Steve. And thank you for having me. And thank you for putting up. I really enjoyed visiting with you. And your your, your listeners won't know this, but we also had a what I would consider a very nice visit before we started recording. It was. And I'm glad I got to know you a little bit. It, uh, you made my week. Oh, that was very kind of you to say. If Please don't please don't find me anywhere. Okay. <laughs> you can go. I just updated MerlinMan.com, by which I mean I finally added a paragraph that's not from six years ago. You can go to MerlinMan.com. That's fine. Okay. Um, you know what else is good? Um, uh, you know what's good is, uh, well, Dubai Friday is probably a little weird. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I, I would say probably reconcilable differences is, is a good thing. Okay, very good. Yeah, that's fine. Remember, just go to MerlinMan.com. You know, check out my wisdom project. That's where I'm trying to help people. Uh, that's right. That's, that's, right. that's linked on my uh, my Squarespace Wonderful. page. Build it, build it beautiful. <laughs> They're not a sponsor, but thank you. Not a sponsor. <laughs> Maybe they will. Maybe they will. Hey, you never know. Again, thank you so much, Merlin Man. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs>